0: It's a great honour t- for me to introduce uh, this evening's lecture by Dr Kathleen Rain on Shelley. Um, since she asked me to, to do this, I've been thinking about some of the reasons why Shelley's work still lives. Kathleen once said to me that Shelley was a paradisal poet. In this, he has a close affinity with Dante. Incidentally, he made a wonderful translation of a passage from the Purgatorio dealing with the earthly paradise and it's a pity he didn't rend- render more from Dante Paradisal poetry is rare in English there is, there is something of the Paradisal in the parts of Paradise Lost that describe the Garden of Eden but then there is little else apart from the best of Shelley until we come to the late cantos of Ezra Pound Shelley's lyrics have a quality of light and air Shelley has received much adverse criticism this century from academic critics who have never attempted to practice poetry themselves, I think of F. R. Leavis. This sort of criticism is the least valid as it often denigrates poets for not possessing qualities that they never intended to put in their work in the first place. I become more and more convinced that the only criticism that matters is that written by poets." Just as Shelley's great ode to the West Wind has its roots in Dante, the moving power of the cenci goes back to Shakespeare. Neither of these poems fall into the category of pastiche, as so often happens when a later poet tries to follow a great master of the past. The quality that is most manifest in Shelley is unfashionable and all the more valuable for that reason. That quality is beauty. I <coughs> pass on to Kathleen Wright.
1: It's a great pleasure to see so many friends here and some who have come for the first time. And you're all very welcome. I hope you all have come because you love Shelley. This paper is entitled Shelley is a Mythological Poet. The turn of the 18th century saw flowering of the imagination in English poetry as brief as it was marvelous. This flowering has left its heritage, unvalued by the materialist culture of the past 200 years, but awaiting its rediscovery as, in Yeats's words, wisdom and poetry return, as he believed they must This will come about as it is realized that not reason but imagination is the supreme faculty, is, in Blake's words, the human existence itself. Two centuries of materialism in the English-speaking West have brought us to a point at which, for a majority, the real world is a solid, measurable world of matter, which in its nature has no place for immeasurable realities of mind and imagination. Coleridge called imagination a repetition in the finite mind of the infinite I am, the creative power by whose agency we build our world on earth as it is in heaven. In the, in the likeness of our innate vision, Whereas for the Abrahamic religions, man is a creature other than an external to God, for the Oriental religions, as for the Platonic tradition, and especially for Plotinus and the Neoplatonists, there is a divine presence innate in man and in all creation. Our world is real because it is the creation of the human imagination. Shelley himself defines poetry as the expression of the imagination and continues poetry awakens and enlarges the mind itself rendering it the receptacle of a thousand unapprehended combinations of thought poetry lifts the veil from the unapprehended beauty of the world and makes familiar objects as if they were unfamiliar. Poetry enlarges the circumference of the imagination by replenishing it with thoughts of ever-new delight. Imagination is a mental world, a world of which nature is a language rather than an object to be described by language, and Shelley's world is above all a world of thought. One can say that all civilizations before our own have been concerned with thought and its values. Indeed, is not the mind the human kingdom itself? (coughs) The great works of the world's wisdom have been concerned with meanings and values, not with measurement of a material order. But does it, one may ask, make any great difference, since we all see and experience the world, whether we hold it to be an object external to us, or an experience of the imagination? There is one great and all-important difference. To the materialist, the world is a lifeless object. To the man of imagination, the world is a living being, full of gods, For the materialist the question is what is nature, what are its rocks and stones and trees, earth, air, fire and water, whereas for imagination the question might more properly be who, who is the west wind, spirit of inspiration, who the skylark, the cloud, the moon, who the rivers and trees so it was, for all the great romantic poets, Blake saw nature as one continued vision of fancy or imagination, where the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, as in the book of Job. For Wordsworth, there is a motion and a spirit that moves through all things, and for Shelley, all lives with the life of the mind. There are subtle and fair spirits whose homes are the dim caves of human thought. The language of imagination is symbolic. That is to say, nature is a language in which ideas, moods, meanings find their correspondence, while at the same time, forms of nature take on meanings Henry Corbin, taking his thought from the Persian Sufi philosopher-poets, has introduced the term imaginal to to describe the world of imagination as distinct from the word imaginary, which in modern parlance means simply unreal, (laughs) non-existent. But although all all thought is... All imaginative thought is symbolic, not all symbolic thought is mythological. Thus, Wordsworth sees nature as a great epiphany of the one motion and spirit that is everywhere present. Conversely, mythological themes may be treated in a historical and biographical manner as fictions, as Tennyson's Idols of King Arthur and the Holy Grail are treated as literal historical fact. Delightful as these narratives may be, they are not mythological in in Tennyson's treatment of them, nor are they in T.E. Whites, The Sword and the Stone, though they again become so in David Jones's The Hunt and The Sleeping Lord. But Shelley's subtle and fair spirits, which inhabit the human mind, live and move and have their being in the world of imagination and are for Shelley redemptive and inspiring. From unremembered ages we, gentle guides and guardians, be of heaven-oppressed mortality, and we breathe and sicken not the atmosphere of human thought, be it dim, dim, and dank and gray, like a storm-extinguished day, travelled o'er by dying gleams, be it bright as all between cloudless skies and windless streams, as the fish as the bird within the wind, as the fish within the wave, as the thoughts of man's own mind float through all above the grave, we make there our liquid lair. Voyaging, cloudless and unpent. In terms of materialist definitions, invisible spirits by whatever name simply do not exist. They are imaginary. But if imagination is the boundless element in which we and our world exist, this world is reality itself. It is not nature that includes mind, but mind which includes the vision of the universe we call nature. To many this is simply unthinkable, but from the standpoint of every spiritually grounded civilization, it is the world of materialism that is limiting, imprisoning and mutilating to the living spirit, preventing the caged bird from flying in its proper element. Blake's call throughout his prophetic poems is a summons to the English nation under the domination of the materialist thought whose fruit was the Industrial Revolution to awake from the deadly sleep into which England had fallen. To the material mentality, imaginative awakening seems illusion and self-deception, and denial thus becomes the highest wisdom for those who charge visionaries with deceiving and call men wise for not believing." Shelley's Prometheus Unbound is a celebration of the return to life and joy of a world freed from the fetters of denial by the affirmation of love one might describe it as a poem of transfiguration through love, to use a word from Christian theology. For Shelley, as indeed for the Christian theologians, transfiguration reveals things as they really are, not less but more than they seem to the common daily mind, the world as it really and forever is. As the spirits sing... We come from the mind of humankind, which was late so dark, obscure, and blind. Now it is an ocean of clear emotion, a heaven of serene and mighty motion. From that d- deep abyss of wonder and bliss, whose caverns are crystal palaces, from those sky towers where thoughts crowned powers sit watching your dance, ye happy hours, and beyond our eyes the human love lies which makes all it gazes on paradise. Yeats, for whom Shelley is the supreme poet, recalls that image, And Shelley had his towers, thoughts crowned, powers he called them once. What for the materialist is illusion, for the imagination is reality itself. Thus all in Shelley's world lives with the life of the mind itself, of imagination that creates it, Skylark and cloud, sensitive plant, the charmed boat of the Witch of Atlas, are all living with the one life of the universe. Yeats, in an essay on the philosophy of Shelley's poetry, writes that he is certain that imagination has some way of lighting on the truth that the reason has not, and it's at, at its commandments, delivered when the body is still and the reason silent, are the most binding we can ever know. And he continues that he has reread Prometheus unbound, and it seems to me to have an even more certain place than I had thought among the, the sacred books of the world. Yeats goes on to say that Shelley, in A Defense of Poetry, shows that the poet and the lawgiver hold their station by right of the same faculty, the one uttering in words, the other in forms of society, his vision of the divine order, the intellectual beauty. for. In Shelley's words, poetry is the creation of actions according to the unchangeable process of human nature as existing in the mind of the creator, which is itself the image of all other minds. This image of the mind of the creator is imagination, which Shelley calls intellectual beauty, as did Plato, who was himself Shelley's supreme teacher. Shelley has been called an atheist and indeed he reacted the Christian God of the Ten Commandments as a tyrannous demiurge as had Blake before him but in the defense of poetry he speaks of the divine order and of the mind of the creator and in Prometheus Unbound makes a distinction very clear between the creator and the moral tyrant Aesha, the bride of Prometheus, puts to Demogorgon the question, who made the living world? Demogorgon, God. Aesha, who made all that it contained, thought, passion, reason? God, almighty God. Who made that sense which, when the winds of spring of one beloved heard by youth alone, fills the faint eyes with falling tears which dim the radiant looks of unbewailing flowers and leaves this peopled earth a solitude when it returns no more? Merciful God. And who made terror, madness, crime, remorse, which from the links of the, of the great chain of things to every thought within the mind of man sway and drag heavily, and each one reels under the load towards the pit of death, abandoned hope and love that turns to hate, and self-contempt, bitterer to drink than blood, Pain, whose unheeded and familiar speech is howling and keen shrieks day after day and hell or the sharp fear of hell. Demogorgon, he reigns. Asia, utter his name, a world pining in pain, asks but his name, curses shall drag him down. Demogorgon, he reigns. And there follows a praise of Prometheus, friend of man, and a denunciation of his enemy, ending with the question, Asia, declare, who is his master? Is he too a slave? Demogorgon, all spirits are enslaved which serve things evil. Thou knowest if Jupiter be such or no. Asia, whom callst thou God? Demogogon, I spoke but as ye speak, for Jove is the supreme of living things. Aisha, who is the master of the slave? Demogogon, if the abyss could vomit forth its secrets, but a voice is wanting, the deep truth is imageless, for what would it avail to bid thee gaze on the revolving word? What world, what to bid speak? Fate, time, occasion, chance and change, to these all things are subject but eternal love. Aisha, so much I so much I asked before, and my heart gave the response that thou hast given, and of such truths each to itself must be the oracle. For the 18th and much of the 19th century, there was no recognized alternative to Christianity except skepticism. One can only describe the English at that time and even now as spiritually, metaphysically, and imaginatively illiterate. There was, however, another current of which the Romantic poets are each in a different way a product. This was a revival of Platonism, At the turn of the century, Thomas Taylor, the Platonist, called the English Pagan, made the first complete translation of Plato's works into English, besides Aristotle, most of Plotinus, Proclus, and the other Alexandrian Neoplatonists. Shelley was himself a proficient Greek scholar, But he cannot fail to have been aware of Thomas Taylor's challenge to Christianity in the name of the Platonic theology, for it was as a religious or metaphysical alternative to Christianity that Taylor saw the canon of the Platonic writings. Taylor's contribution <coughs> to a revival of Platonism was deeply resented by the academic establishment, but it was seminal among those engaged in imaginative thought, and especially the poets. Coleridge absorbed his writings as a schoolboy. He was an early friend of Blake gave a series of lectures on the Platonic theology at the house of Blake's friend, Flaxman the Sculptor, appears in one of the novels of Shelley's friend, Thomas Love Peacock, and Mary Wollstonecraft, mother of Mary Shelley, was at one time his lodger. Shelley's rejection of Christianity was that of a deeply versed Platonist, not that of a skeptic. Like Taylor, he had no respect for Christian theology and saw, as did Blake also, the moral lawgiver of the Bible as a tyrannous illusion. Shelley's vision was a larger, more philosophically subtle, more metaphysically traditional alternative to Christianity, but one not likely to be understood Not likely to be understood by his contemporaries, whether the Anglican clergy, who held absolute control of the universities, or the emerging figures of science and technology, whose material success in promoting the Industrial Revolution was to prevail... Shelley was in reality more deeply committed to a vision of man as a spiritual being than the dearest clergy of his time and place not in the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of the body but through traditional Platonic and Vedic doctrine of the immortality of the soul he certainly believed Plato's affirmation for who knows whether to live be not to die and to die to live repeated from one to another poet and philosopher of the Hellenic world, lies at the heart of Adonais, Shelley's great celebration of Keats and elegy on his death. Heraclitus' is teaching that mortals are immortals and immortals mortals is not fancy, as it can only seem to the ignorant modern West, but is an integral part of the Platonic theology. The generating soul dies from eternity into the time world to resume its native immortality at death. And it is this doctrine, not some fancy of his own, that Shelley affirms in those burning lines familiar to us all the one remains, the many change and pass. Heaven's light forever shines, earth's shadows fly. Life, like a dome of many colored glass, stains the white radiance of eternity until death tramples it to fragments. Die if thou wouldst be with that which thou dost seek. Follow where all is fled, Rome's azure sky, ruin the statue's music, words are weak, the glory they transfuse with fitting truth to speak. The time world, Plato's moving image of eternity, is a pale and imperfect image of the eternal world it reflects. Furthermore, in common with Blake and perhaps with Wordsworth also, Shelley clearly held the belief common to the Hellenic world the Jewish mystical tradition, and India to this day of reincarnation. Lines which most of Shelley's readers can only take as poetic fancy, he certainly did not intend as such. For Shelley, we are pilgrims of eternity. Symbolic images are not arbitrary signs. Light and darkness... Sun and moon, wind and cloud, mountain peaks and underground caverns, dove and swan and albatross, all these correspond in the nature of things to the meanings from time immemorial associated with them, as do some human creations, towers, palaces, or Shelley's magic boats on magic journeys. Myth carries symbolic discourse to a stage further, it personifies, it enacts, and its actors are what Yeats uh, calls the eternal moods, the gods of all pantheons, who correspond as it seems to, in Shelley's words, the unchangeable process of human nature as existing in the mind of the creator." All myths relate parts of what Edwin Muir called the fable, of which every individual human story is an approximation and partial enactment. What the fable is, we do not know. Only certain parts of it, imagination, is ever at work, weaving and revealing. In that timeless world, As in the once upon a time of fairy tales, as in our dreams, the laws of nature give place to the laws of the imagination, where thoughts are causes and effects magical. The psychology of C.G. Jung has restored to us at least a clue to the nature of mental and mythological worlds in which our ancestors were at home. The bleak factuality of materialist scientific doctrine is once again called into question by the imagination. In that dimension, Shelley moved habitually and with ease Mythological discourse in Shelley unites what is in its own right imagery of the natural world of perfect precision and beauty with meanings on another level, that of the imagination. His ode to the west wind, which Tom Durham will later read to us, is at once a marvellous description of the wind and storm blowing over Italian skies, the behaviour of clouds charged with electricity about to discharge itself, and wind as an age-old symbol of inspiration, of spirit. Shelley can never be faltered in those beautiful correspondences he always finds for the language of the soul, The lark is at once the bird and the soaring impulse of joy. Cloud and moon, all the scale of nature on which he played as a musician upon a keyboard, formed that texture of beauty by which he knew so well how to transport us onto another plane, seldom realized in daily life, yet never remote or inaccessible. In the play Hellas, Shelley takes the figure of Ahasuerus from the medieval legend of the wandering Jew, who is the deathless possessor of cosmic knowledge the archetypal figure Jung calls the wise old man, who in different guises is to be found in all mythologies and visits our dreams, imparting wisdom beyond the (coughs) reach of individual experience and the daily mind. How like a dream is this passage of myth, he who would question him must sail alone at sunset where the stream of ocean sleeps around those foamless isles when the young moon is westering as now, and when the pines of that bee pasturing isle green erebinthus quench the fiery shadow of the gilt prow within the sapphire water, then must the lonely helmsman cry aloud. Ahasuerus, and the caverns round will answer, Ahasuerus, if his prayer be granted, a faint meteor will arise, lighting him over Marmora, and a wind will rush out of the sighing pine forest, and with the wind a storm of harmony unutterably sweet." It is not hard to understand from such passages why, for Yeats, Shelley is the supreme poet, uniting in his symbolic virtuosity images of the visible world with resonances of meaning and beauty of the immeasurable worlds of imagination. Water's natural description could surpass the fiery shadow of a gilt prow in sapphire water." the faint meteor, and the wind that will rush out of the pine forest with a storm of harmony, the sunset where the stream of ocean sleeps around these foamless isles when the young moon is westering. With what virtuosity does the poet use these images as a language of correspondence, as metaphors for the soul's country? As in our dreams, each image is charged with meaning and feeling. No detail is added which does not serve, again as in our dreams, to communicate realities of another order. The time is twilight between the sleeping and the waking, be, between the light of common day and the mystery of darkness between the sleeping and the waking mind as Yeats has described the place of imaginative inspiration the summoner of a secret wisdom must go alone for his is an inner journey none can share the sea cavern, doubtless signifies for Shelley the homeric cave of the nymphs, sacred shrine where life itself issues from a source hidden in impenetrable darkness that mysterious cave where Ahasuerus dwells is the place of the daemonesi, diamonds spirit messengers between worlds. Intelligence is known in other traditions as angels, and indeed Shelley does so name them in the Ode to the West Wind, the same who on Jacob's ladder ascend and descend between heaven and earth, the higher and lower worlds. Ahasuerus, Archetype of cosmic knowledge is to be summoned from the inner realms of soul itself, as in Prometheus Unbound, Demogorgon makes Asia understand of such truths, each to itself must be the oracle. Ahasuerus advises the sultan who has come to consult him, to commune with that portion of thyself which was ere thou didst start for this brief race whose crown is dead. None can approach that frontier without awe, without the sense of the numinous, which can be experienced but not defined. The inspired voice speaks of a mystery, which is in its nature beyond the comprehension of reason. This is the realm of mythology, at once strange and familiar. Our remote ancestors moved in that world with ease, and their records are their myths. We ourselves experience that world in our dreams, in which, indeed, we should read symbolic poetry and myth as we would interpret dreams, and read our dreams as if they were poetry. That world is no less native to us than is the world of common day, and it it is the art of imaginative poetry to open to us its frontier. He also, Shelley that is, also understood that this imaginative dimension is in reality present as a dimension in every life, and it is for the poet to reveal its presence in epipsychidion, the great love poem addressed to Emilia Viviani, Shelley's passionate imagination. I'm sorry, Shelley's passionate indignation at the thought of this beautiful young woman taking the veil as a nun arose from his vision of the sacredness of the erotic. He sees the divine beauty in the woman of flesh and blood and in the particular woman, the presence of the goddess. The brightness of her divinest presence Oh, I think you're going to read that, Tom, aren't you? No? <coughs> the, the brightness of her divinest presence trembles through her limbs as underneath a cloud of dew embodied in the windless heaven of June. Among the splendor-winged stars the moon burns inextinguishably beautiful. And from her lips as from a hyacinth full of honeydew a liquid murmur drops Killing the sense with passion, sweet as thoughts of planetary music heard in trance. In her mild light, the starry spirits dance, the sunbeams of those wells that ever leap under the lightnings of the soul, too deep for the brief fathom line of thought and sense. The glory of her being, issuing thence, stains the blank cold air with a warm shade of unentangled intermixture made by love. Paradoxically... Poets are legislators of the world not because they attend to the outer events that are the concern of politicians and journalists, but because they perceive inner realities, these being the spiritual causes of natural effects. Blake's great mythological narratives are concerned with the inner condition of England's national life at the time of the French and American Industrial Revolutions. As a mythologist concerned with the world of causes, no poet has effected more in the world of history than did Shelley. It was Shelley who formulated the principle of non-violence as a power more potent than arms, and it was Shelley's The Mask of Anarchy that inspired Gandhi, who carried Shelley's seemingly impracticable dream into effect in a way that has changed the consciousness of the world. But greater still, I believe, is the importance of Shelley's proclamation of the sacred nature of erotic love. In the Christian tradition, sexual love was the cause of the fall of man. With Shelley on the contrary, Eros is redemptive. Rousseau had, in his confessions, first made his plea for free love, and Mary Walsoncroft, follower of Rousseau, had in her tragic life put into practice Rousseau's revolutionary principle. Shelley's second wife, Mary, was the daughter of this first feminist and of Godwin, the political theorist whom she married, to die giving birth to Shelley's Mary. Shelley's older contemporary Blake had known and much admired Mary Wollstonecraft, two of whose books he had illustrated, and Blake's poem Visions of the Daughters of Albion, an eloquent plea for free love, is clearly inspired by Mary. It seems likely that Blake would have given a copy of this poem to Mary, who had inspired it, and if so, Shelley could have seen it in Godwin's house. Christianity, which exalts virginity and motherhood in the Blessed Virgin Mary, never at any time allowed a place for the erotic. For the first time with Shelley, and to a lesser degree with Keats, whom Shelley passionately admired, the erotic was to enter English poetry, not as the cause of the fall of man, but as a sacred and luminous reality, In his choice of Prometheus as a friend of man, Shelley was to transform Aeschylus drama on the theme of Prometheus into a celebration of the power of love. Prometheus, benefactor of mankind because he stole fire from the gods and gave it to men, was punished by Zeus, changed chained to a rock in the Caucasus, where the eagle, bird of Zeus, tore his liver, a torment daily renewed. In the version of Aeschylus, Prometheus was freed because he held a secret of the prophecy that Thetis, a daughter of Poseidon, would bear a son greater than his father. By revealing this secret to Zeus, Prometheus prevented his union with Thetis, who was married to Peleus, a mortal, and fathered Achilles. But Shelley was unwilling to allow the great friend of man to surrender to his enemy, the tyrant of mankind. Indeed, he had at one time thought of Milton's Satan as the heroic rebel. He changed the story, introducing Demogorgon as the son of Zeus by Thetis, greater than his father, who was to lead in a new age in which love would be the supreme power and rule the world. Shelley understood that the world of myth of imagination is a living, self-creating world, and to be bound by history is not in its nature. Thus, while Prometheus and Jupiter are taken from Aeschylus, Demogorgon and Asia are of Shelley's creation in accordance with what he himself discerned of the inner changes taking place behind the history of his own age." Blake, too, had proclaimed a new age and Wordsworth saw in the French Revolution a dawn of freedom. There is in Aeschylus drama no feminine figure except Io, turned by jealous Hera into a cow who in her wanderings visits Prometheus. Perhaps Io is, a vestigial, is pre- vestigially present is vestigially present in Shelley's Prometheus unbound in the form of ione, who with Asia and Panthea, which simply means all goddess, are the daughters of ocean. In a note by Mrs. Shelley, Asia is said to represent Venus or nature. Why then is she named Asia? Shelley sets the seed of Prometheus' torment in a ravine of Iasi rocks in the Indian Caucasus. Now, the Caucasus range is not in India, as Shelley must have known. The location belongs not to the geography of the planet, but to the geography of the imagination. The region of Prometheus' redemption is located on the border of the India of the imagination for symbolic reasons. His beloved, his Shakti, Shelley names Asia as if to say that the Promethean Western mind needs for its completion the feminine soul of the Orient. Asia can only be in this context India for the scene of reunion of the liberated Prometheus with Asia is that far Indian Vale, a lovely veil in the Indian Caucasus the temple of Prometheus was formerly built beyond the peak of Bacchus Nyssa, Menad-haunted mountain, and beyond Indus with its tribute rivers. The mention here of Bacchus and his Menads is again the geography of the imagination, for Dionysus was the god of inspiration, and the Menads are invoked in the ode to the west wind in this context. Doubtless it would be possible to find sources for Shelley's lovely Indian veil in travellers' tales of the forests of Kashmir, but no accuracy or inaccuracy of description is needed to account for the rich imaginative landscape of symbolic correspondence, a cave all overgrown with trailing odorous plants. I'm sorry a cave all overgrown with trailing odorous plants which curtain out the day with leaves and flowers and paved with veined emerald, and a fountain leaps in the midst with an awakening sound from its carved roof the mountain's frozen tears like snow in silver of long diamond spires hang downward raining forth a doubtful light and there is heard the ever-moving air and bees, and all around our mossy seats, and the rough walls are clothed with long, soft grass, a simple dwelling that shall be our own. Rama and Sita built their bar in those same woods where all lovers dwell in their paradisal dream. The Romayan is full of lovely, luxurious descriptions of incense-bearing trees and lotus lakes, for the poetry of erotic love demands in itself creates those forest glades of unspoiled nature, where the Champak odors fall like sweet thoughts in a dream. Where did Shelley come to know the scent of Champak? but shelley would never have created a character so central to his greatest work from vague impressions of exotic beauty gathered from travellers' tales what could shelley have gathered what could shelley have known of indian poetry charles wilkins Friend and colleague of Sir William Jones and friend of Dr Johnson, had published the first translation of the Bhagavad Gita into English in, 17, in 1790. Blake knew his work, and Shelley, with his interest in things Indian, would certainly have done so. <clears throat> but although this great poem is spoken by the Lord Krishna to his friend, to his cousin Arjuna on the battlefield of Kurukshetra, there is no mention in it of erotic love. But there are two works which Shelley is likely to have known, both translated by Sir William Jones himself. One is Kalidasa's Shakuntala, the story of a half-divine daughter of an Apsara, who was found in the forest and married by the king of Bharat. This work was popular and widely read in England. Goethe, Goethe is said to have admired it. The other is the Gita Govinda, written in the twelfth century by Jayadeva, celebrating the, I think it's, that's wrong I think it's the ninth century by Jayadeva, celebrating the loves of the Lord Krishna and Radha, one of the gopis of Brindavan. The worship of the god Krishna throughout India is associated with Radha, his beloved, with Krishna as the divine flute player who enchants and seduces the milkmaids of Brindavan. Jones's translation appeared in the Proceedings of the Calcutta Society in 1792, and although there is no record of Shelley's having read it, it seems very unlikely that he had not. Would not the poet, his mind engaged in the theme of the sacredness of love, in naming his goddess figure Asia and situating her home in India, have had better evidence than vague exoticism for choosing India the home of the great cult of sacred erotic love? The Gita Govinda is the source of the widespread Bhakti cult of India, of numberless paintings, of the love of Radha and Krishna, of the famous circle dance performed in Brindavan to this day, and the most widely performed theme of the Indian classical dance. The supreme love theme of India is the love between Krishna and the divine lover and Radha, The erotic images are understood on several levels, as in the Song of Solomon, the mystical union of the soul with God, but also as a celebration of the sacred nature of sexual love itself. Radha is an invention of poetry, yet has become a goddess whose myth is danced, painted, enacted, and celebrated throughout India with temples dedicated to Radha and her divine lover. Indeed, I found myself not many years ago at the very heart of Rata's festival, celebrated on the Feast of Holy at Brindavan, where the child Krishna grew up among the gopis, the the milkmaids of, of the Krishna story. There is, of course, much in common between the Platonic and the Vedic traditions, but there are passages whose cosmic sweep seems to take their inspiration from the song of the Lord Krishna, the Bhagavad Gita. In Hellas, these words of Ahasuerus. This whole of sun and worlds and men and beasts and flowers with all the silent and tempestuous workings by which they have been, are, and cease to be, is but a vision. All that it inherits are motes of a sick eye, bubbles and dreams. Thought is its oracle and its grave, nor less the future and the past are idle shadows of thought's eternal flight. They have no being, nought is but that which feels itself to be. The Shakespearean reference, notwithstanding all that it inherits, thought's eternal flight seems closer to India than to Plato, Be that as it may, India has always had a deep love for the poetry of Shelley, at least until secularization and westernization of Indian education began to destroy their great traditional culture. Shelley has been the most loved of the English poets, India has for Shelley a greater sense of affinity than he has ever enjoyed in his own country, save from those who, like Yeats, were themselves seekers for spiritual knowledge. Indian friends have quoted to me as an example of Shelley's closeness to Indian symbolic thought this stanza from Adonais, "'That light whose smile kindles the universe.'" that beauty which in all things work and move, that benediction which the eclipsing curse of birth can quench not, that sustaining love that through the web of being blindly wove by man and beast and earth and air and sea burns bright or dim as each are mirrors of the fire for which all thirst now beams on me consuming the last clods of cold mortality. Blake in his old age wrote his own reflection on those who live on earth as if it were already that other timeless world of mind or spirit which to imagination is more real than the shadowy world of cold mortality. He was surely remembering besides Thomas Paine Those young revolutionary idealists who used to meet weekly at Johnson's Bookshop in St. Paul's Churchyard when they were all young, among them Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft, and his words apply no less to Shelley, child of that revolution. Many persons, such as Paine and Voltaire, with some of the ancient Greeks, say, we will not converse concerning good and evil, we will live in paradise and liberty. You may do so in spirit, but not in the mortal body as you pretend, till after the last judgment, for in paradise they have no corporeal and mortal body. Shelley affirmed the sacred nature of sexual love and his attempt to live by that vision bruised himself and has ever since been condemned by those who live in the real world. But to Shelley, the vision was more real than the world of cold mortality that has judged him and he believed that someday the world will live according to the truth of the imagination under the rule of love In his great poem, which Yeats names among the sacred books of the world, he gave that vision its vesture of poetry as a reality of the human spirit already realized. Thank you.
2: From the hymn to intellectual beauty. The day becomes more solemn, and serene when noon is past. There is a harmony in autumn and a luster in its sky which through the summer is not heard or seen, as if it could not be, as if it had not been. Thus, let thy power, which like the truth of nature on my passive youth descended, To my onward life, supply its calm to one who worships thee and every form containing thee, whom, spirit fair, thy spells did bind to fear himself and love all humankind. The chorus of Greeks captured by the Turks, proclaim the glory of Greece that shall return. The world's great age begins anew, the golden years return, the earth shall like a snake renew her winter weeds outworn, heaven smiles and faiths and empires gleam like wrecks of a decaying, dissolving dream. A brighter hellas rears its mountains from waves serena far. A new Peneus rolls his fountains against the morning star, where fairer tempests bloom their sleep, young Cyclads on a sunnier deep. A loftier Argo cleaves the main, fraught with a later prize. Another Orpheus sings again and loves and weeps and dies. A new Ulysses leaves once more, Calypso for his native shore. Oh, write no more the tale of Troy, If earth death's scroll must be, Nor mix with lion rage the joy Which dawns upon the free. Although a subtler sphinx renew, Riddles of death Thebes never knew, Another Athens shall arise, and too remote a time bequeath Like sunset to the skies The splendor of its prime And leave If nought so bright may live All earth can take Or heaven can give Saturn and love Their long repose shall burst More bright and good than all who fell Than one who rose than many unsubdued? Not gold, not blood their altar dowers, but votive tears and symbol flowers. Oh, cease! Must hate and death return? Cease! Must men kill and die? Cease! Drain not to its dregs the urn of bitter prophecy. The world is weary of the past. or might it die or rest at last? the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Ode to the West Wind O wild west wind, thou breath of autumn's being. Thou, from whose unseen presence the leaves dead are driven like ghosts from an enchanter fleeing, yellow and black and pale and hectic red, pestilence-stricken multitudes. O thou, who chariotest to their dark, wintry bed the winged seeds where they lie cold and low, each like a corpse within its grave, until thine azure sister of the spring shall blow her clarion o'er the dreaming earth and fill driving sweet buds like flocks to feed in air, with living hues and odors, plain and hill. Wild spirit, which art moving everywhere, destroyer and preserver, here, oh, here. Thou, on whose stream mid the steep sky's commotion, loose clouds like earth decaying leaves are shed, shook from the tangled boughs of heaven and ocean, angels of rain and lightning, there are spread on the fine surface of thine airy surge, like the bright hair uplifted from the head of some fierce menad, even from the dim verge of the horizon to the zenith height, the locks of the approaching storm, thou dirge of the dying year, to which this closing night will be the dome of a vast sepulchre, vaulted with all thy congregated might of vapors, from whose solid atmosphere black rain and fire and hail will burst. Oh, hear. Thou, who didst waken from his summer dreams, the blue Mediterranean where he lay, lulled by the coil of his crystalline streams, beside a pumice isle in Baie's Bay, and saw in sleep old palaces and towers quivering within the waves, intenser day, all overgrown with azure moss and flowers so sweet the sense faints picturing them. Thou, For whose path the Atlantic's level powers Cleave themselves into chasms While far below the sea-blooms and the oozy woods That wear the sapless foliage of the ocean Know thy voice and suddenly grow grey with fear And tremble and despoil themselves Oh, hear, if I were a dead leaf thou mightest bear If I were swift cloud to fly with thee, a wave to pant beneath thy power and share the impulse of thy strength, only less free than thou, O uncontrollable. If even I were as in my boyhood and could be the comrade of thy wanderings over heaven, as then, when to outstrip thy sky speed, scarce seemed a vision, I would ne'er have striven as thus with thee in prayer in my sore need. O lift me as a wave, a leaf, a cloud, I fall upon the thorns of life. I bleed. A heavy weight of hours has chained and bowed one too like thee, Tameless and swift and proud. Make me thy lyre. Even as the forest is, what if my leaves are falling like its own? The tumult of thy mighty harmonies will take from both a deep autumnal tone, Sweet though in sadness. Be thou spirit fierce, my spirit. Be thou me, impetuous one. Drive my dead thoughts over the universe like withered leaves to quicken a new birth. And by the incantation of this verse, scatter as from an unextinguished hearth ashes and sparks my words among mankind. Be through my lips to unawakened earth the trumpet of a prophecy. O oh, wind, if winter comes, can spring be far behind? <coughs> and from the elegy to Keats, the Lord, Adonis, Adonai, Adonis. He is made one with nature. There is heard his voice in all her music from the moan of thunder to the song of night's sweet bird. He is a presence to be felt and known in darkness and in light from herb and stone spreading itself where'er that power may move which has withdrawn his being to its own which wields the world with never-wearied love sustains it from beneath and kindles it above. He is a portion of the loveliness which once he made more lovely. He doth bear his part while the one spirit's plastic stress sweeps through the dull, dense world, compelling there all new successions to the forms they wear, torturing the unwilling dross that checks its flight to its own likeness as each mass may bear. Spursting in its beauty and its might, from trees and beasts and men into the heaven's light. The splendors of the firmament of time may be eclipsed, but are extinguished not. Like stars to their appointed height they climb, and death is a low mist which cancels not, which cannot blot the brightness it may veil. When lofty thought lifts the young heart above its mortal lair and love and life contend in it for what shall be its mortal doom, the dead live there and move like winds of light on dark and stormy air. The one remains. The many change and pass. Heaven's light forever shines. Earth's shadows fly. Life, like a dome of many-colored glass, stains the white radiance of eternity until death tramples it to fragments. Die, if thou wouldst be with that which thou dost seek. Follow where all is fled. Rome's as your sky. Flowers, ruins, statues, music, words are weak the glory they transfuse with fitting truth to speak. Why linger, why turn back, why shrink my heart? Thy hopes are gone before, from all things here they have departed, thou shouldst now depart. A light is passed from the revolving year, and man and woman, and what still is dear, attracts to crush, repels to make thee, Wither the soft sky smiles, the low wind whispers near, Tis Adonais calls, O, oh, hasten thither, no more, let life divide what death can join together, That light whose smile kindles the universe. That beauty in which all things work and move. That benediction which the eclipsing curse of birth can quench not. That sustaining love which through the web of being blindly wove by man and beast and earth and air and sea burns bright or dim as each are mirrors of the fire for which all thirst now beams on me, consuming the last clouds of cold mortality. The breath, whose might I have invoked in song, descends on me. My spirit's bark is driven far from the shore, far from the trembling throng, whose sails were never to the tempest given. The massy earth, the spirit skies are riven, I am born darkly, Fearfully afar, whilst burning through the inmost veil of heaven, the soul of Adonais, like a star, beacons from the abode where the eternal are.
1: for me because I am terribly deaf the T.S. Eliot didn't like Shelley is that it <laughs> no no I wish I thought it were I hope it will be I think you see that the the imagination uh, as Yeats said the three provincial centuries are over poetry and wisdom return and the words of a great poet can be prophetic and I hope Yates's words, there is a a lamentable lack of imagination and vision in the arts at the present time. As one sees from the monstrosities exhibited at the Tate and the the, uh, Royal Academy, in all the arts, even in music, Discord has taken the place of harmony and beauty, and poetry the same uh, the description of the ugly and the meaningless has taken the place of what Shelley was doing and what all true poets are doing, which is bringing a reflection of the of the world of eternity into the world of time and space because. There is no longer in a materialist civilization a belief in the reality of these things. It is dismissed. But these things are real because we can create them. We have the power out of the human imagination to create civilizations. What else are civilizations except creations of the human imagination from time immemorial? And at the present time, the mentality is rather destructive than creative. It can denigrate, it can destroy, it can deny, but it has lost this marvelous power which Shelley had and Wordsworth and Blake and Keats and Yeats and Dante and all true poets at all times and places of creating this universe of higher things And uh, I, I think this is, we are all aware of that in the arts of this time, including even architecture. It's unbelievable how much, how we can only create ugliness out of this materialist mentality. We can't create beauty unless the vision of beauty is there. And it is there because it is something innate in man it is deeply in us we respond to it when we see beauty we recognize it and our soul responds we say oh yes that's it and this denial and denigration is is really it's murderous it is destroying destroys people it's suicidal in the artist and it is Murderous to, to the re- recipient. And I was glad to see in uh, a paper a few days ago uh, a, a, an attack by uh, one of our former lecturers, uh, Peter Abs, on the so called art being exhibited at the Tate, the competitors for the Turner Prize. I think it was that he was attacking, and the same is true, of course, at the uh, exhibits at the Royal Academy. It is a very serious situation, and our civilization must either, the, the gods must reverse themselves, as in as in Shelley's poems, which Tom read to us just now, uh, the golden age begins new, the, the, the golden years return. Either the, the guards must swing from the materialist to, again, to the golden age, or we're lost, only since the finish, the world will destroy itself, and the outer destruction may well succeed what is, in fact, the more serious thing, which is the inner destruction which is going on. That will produce the, the outer destruction which we all fear so much, from bombs and 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 all the rest of it, but bombs and poisons and destruction don't make themselves. It is men who make them, men and women. I don't say that women haven't played their part too, because I, I think we're all deeply responsible for the vision by which we live. I'm sorry I've gone on too long with that we, question. We, we do. Yes, absolutely so. Or re- recreate something equivalent to Shelley, because poets never repeat themselves. Yeats, I think, was the last poet, the last really major poet, who was on the level of Shelley. Who, for Yeats, was the supreme poet. But there have been other poets. There have been Dylan Thomas and and George Barker and Edwin Muir, and there's been. Uh, and, of course, Ril uh, There have been wonderful poets in this century, but I see, I think Jeremy Reed at the back there is one of the true poet of his time, and many of you perhaps heard his lecture last week on Edgar Allan Poe, but there are very, very few, and it is the work of Temenos is indeed to, to reaffirm this human vision, which is so important to us all. Yes?
3: Um, I don't have a question, but I just wanted to refer to one of the points that you made during your talk, uh, referring to uh, some of your Indian friends and their great respect for Shelley. I just wanted to add here that Shelley's uh, vision and his poetry has also played a very distinct uh, role in the independence movement of the Indian subcontinent. Um, has started from the turn of the century. In 1930s, a body of Indian writers and poets and drama writers, actors, they got together and um, formed a progressive writer's movement uh, which set into motion a full-fledged intellectual movement for um, freedom. And uh, while their views and their visions were informed by Western thinkers and writers um, from Walter to um, Marx, uh, Shelley's Prometheus Unbound was almost uh, translated into 18 Indian languages and it was read as an anthem in their conferences, and they had four conferences from 1935 to 1947, and each time uh, Prometheus Unbound um, was read in various languages uh, and enacted also uh, as, as a form of street theatre in various parts of India um, and Punjab.
1: Thank you very much. I didn't know that it was so early and that it had been a whole movement. But of course, I knew that Gandhiji, uh, that the the poem that he derived from was the Mask of Anarchy in particular. And and, uh, that that, that for him, but I didn't understand that there'd also been quite a movement in India. But I do find that the older generation of Indians whom I know all know reams of Shelley by heart, and he's very important to India, but India was very important to Shelley. That is what I think is, uh, uh, no one seems to have thought of asking what Shelley knew about Indian poetry. And in fact, he did quite a bit, I think. Thank you.
4: Don't you think it's because such terrible materials in the world today, that the poets are largely forgotten, and it's only in small gatherings like this that brought people's knowledge? And I think that Shelley and Keats and Farley were two invention He is, as you know, a very popular British poet all over Europe and he all over the world. that each of them contributed so much because although they may have been atheists, Shelley wrote The Necessity of Atheism, as you know. The Necessity of Atheism. But he believed, as you rightly said, he was theater. He believed in in an all overwhelming spirit. And I think it's said that both he and Keats and Ball and the other Romantics didn't have more influence from the East, from other religions, which I'm sure they would have appreciated enormously. Because although they were not religious, they were immensely interested in the things of the spirit, as you call that.
1: I entirely agree with you and of course I think we are now moving from what one might call religious uh, thought into spiritual thought. People now are looking for spiritual knowledge not to religious conviction and I think that in India this has been so. For much longer than it has been, in, and probably in other oriental religions, in the Sufis, in the. In, all religions have had their mystical tradition, but India in particular. <coughs> well, I know India better than I know any other foreign country. And so, but I think the translations of the uh, various Indian texts by. Sir William Jones and others, of, um, and Sir Charles Wilkins at that time, had a tremendous inspirational power, and it, it's flowed backwards, and uh, there are many fine Indian critics, of course, of Shelley. I think he's been more appreciated outside this country than than here, but I entirely agree with you that it is it is... He called himself an the 80s. the god he didn't believe in was not the true, was not the creator. I remember an Indian friend giving a lecture here and someone asked about uh, Indra, uh, and the lecturer replied, but these are only the gods, you know. The gods are not the supreme spirit which Shelley understood and, and Wordsworth understood and Blake also. Uh, Blake identified with the imagination. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's a very interesting point.
2: Simon? When, uh, the Greeks uh, have a divinity for the,
3: for the groves and for the streams. They have their Naiads and their Dryads and their different divinities. And when Shelley used to put out an offering of bread and wine behind his house to the god Pan, when he was living in Italy. Do you see, do you yourself see life in those times? Or for you, is is it a romantic movement? You no, I, I truly believe
1: them. that the, 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 the world is alive, that trees are alive, that animals are alive. If, if you take the other view, Simon, what you end with is in thinking that human beings are not alive, that we're pieces of mechanism. And you begin to get that, you see, from America, the behaviourist movement reduces all human behaviour to mechanism and you end by disbelieving in, in, in man also... And you end by, as it were, um, idolizing computers and saying, do they really think? Have they really got minds? While the living world of plants and uh, rocks and stones and stars and clouds and moon and all that become a dead world. And to Shelley, it was a totally living world, the cloud, the skylark, the moon, the, the, the wind. And that is... Very much what uh, in other civilizations the, uh, they live in a living world. In in
3: that's what we've lost. What? that is what we've lost,
1: what and, that we've that lost. and we are turning ourselves also into pieces of mechanism, where we're turning mechanism into idols that can do all kinds of things. But we are doing terrible things to ourselves by denying that everything in the universe is 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 living. This was very clear in the Zoroastrian religion, uh, the religion of Zoroaster. The um, what was it called? Um, it wasn't called Zoroastrian. It was called yes. Yes, 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 of course. And this was very, very clear, and um, Henri Colbert has written very wonderfully about that, and uh, I was practically quoting for him when I said the question we should ask is, who are these, not what are they? But we're beginning to see even ourselves as, as non...
3: Where Blake says that everything that lives is holy, yes that everything that lives is alive and has its own life.
1: Yes, and the holy, holy, is not a theory. It's an experience, isn't it? The experience of the holy. The holy has no uh, measurable meaning. It is it is a, a, an experience that when Moses knelt down, when the burning bush spoke to Moses, and God said, "Take thy shoes from off thy feet, for the ground whereon thou standest is holy ground." This was something Moses experienced. He suddenly saw it, it was an epiphany, and it might have been any bush, I mean, not one particular bush, it could have been any bush at all, and sometimes we are privileged for a moment to catch a flash of seeing things as they really are. It happens, I think, to perhaps everybody at some moment, we suddenly see it, and it's a marvellous thing, and that's what Blake meant. I think he experienced this not just once in a lifetime, but fairly continuously, or often, shall we say. Is there time for one more question, Stephen, or is that it? One more? more? Yes. Uh,
4: You said uh, Shelley had an impact on Gandhi on his formation of of, uh, non-violent ideas. Yes, he did. the also impact on, on at all?
1: I d I don't hope I heard all you said. You wanted You wanted to know more about Gandhiji's... Uh, 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 well I I know this to be a fact from um, his grandson, uh, Gopalji, uh, Gopal Krishna Gandhi, who was recently here as the head of Nehru Center. And I said, well, I'm sure that, that uh, Gandhiji must have got some of this from Shelley. and He said, yes, he did. It was from The Mask of Anarchy, which is about the... It's a very political poem, really. It's about the Peterloo riots in which the... Um, the workers made a, a, a passive resistance to the, the masters, and I believe they, they were shot. There was a—it was a very horrible thing, you know—that happened, and and Shelley wrote this indignant political poem, in which Tom, have you got the works of Shelley there? Because if you could read the last, the last verses of the Mask of Anarchy, uh, it, it is these were the words what? they seem to me
4: all the government, government they don't like anarchists and they think the anarchists are quite violent <laughs> oh,
1: I don't uh, I, I don't know that the political party of anarchy, these things mean different things at different times but um, you got it there
2: I'm ashamed, I'm terrible this is the Kathy Rayne edition and uh, and
1: the Morsk of Anarchy is not in it. The think
2: the Moscow Anarchy is in this. You've got the triumph of life, which I think you don't approve of so much. Oh,
1: dear. No? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Nobody else has got a Shelley with them? No. But anyway, the, the, the lines that, that, that Gandhi particularly uh, appreciated was ye are many, they are few. And this was a, a, an incitement to the, to the suppressed multitudes to revolt against the many. And uh, Shelley says, "You not use violence, just non-resistance. And it is an amazing thing that I think it is true to say that Gandhi changed the human consciousness. Have you got some? Oh, thank you, Jill. <laughs> Would you like to give it to Tom <coughs> the just the, the few last verses really I think we haven't time to read the whole poem it's rather long you got it there
3: yes Reported
2: speech.
1: It's near the end.
0: Every woman.
2: Every woman in the land will point at them as they stand. They will hardly dare to greet their acquaintance in the street. And the bold, true warriors who have hugged danger who have had danger in the wars, will turn to those who would be free of shame of such base company. And that slaughter to the nation shall steam up like inspiration, eloquent oracular, a volcano heard afar. And these words shall then become like oppression's thundered doom, ringing through each heart and brain, heard again, again, again. Rise like lions after slumber, its unvanquishable number shake your chains to earth like you, which in sleep had fallen on you. Ye are many, they are few. That's
1: it? <laughs> <coughs> well, I think we stopped, Steve. Well, thank you.
3: Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Again.